In contrast with a war in heaven, this frontal assault, this is kind of a bit of a guerrilla warfare moment where he's trying to be sneaky about what he's doing. All right, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. I'm Jörg. And we have our special friend, Doug Jones. Hey, really great to be here. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) That doesn't sound like you're really great Uh, to be here. It's like, hey. It is really great to be here, but there was no way I was going to say the first thing I say on this podcast and be happy with it. So I said it. I said a funny, hey, that's an okay way to start in my book. That sounds great. I was going to say, yeah, we're welcoming him back. And then I went, I wasn't here for the first time. And I went, there was a first time. So yeah, we are welcoming Doug yeah, back. Yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm letting Murdoch play with others now. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to be in <laughs> on the, interview, the and interviews, the discussions. So yeah. I got a question. Here's the best part. I told Doug about this yesterday. So I gave him time to think. Murdoch usually hates when I do questions because mm. I don't give him any time to think. So we'll let Doug answer first, and then Sweet. I'll answer. So that gives you enough time to... Good time for my brain to yeah. engage. So best maniacal laugh from a villain that you've ever heard. All right. This is a bit of a deep cut. Princess Bride, the uh, Sicilian villain, like the bandit guy who's like the leader of the little band. There's a battle of wits. Some will remember the scene where it's the poison in the goblets, and they have yes. to figure out which one is the one that's poisoned. And the trick is they're both poisoned, but but the protagonist is immune to it. Spoiler alert. And it's the guy. Oh, my bad. This <laughs> 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 from the early 90s, I want to say. Anyway, um, and uh, you, know, you know the guy. He's the guy that does the voice of Rex from the Toy Story movies. I can't remember the actor's name. But he thinks he's won, and he's like, you just fell victim to one of the classic blunders. And he just starts laughing with this hysterical, funny laughter, thinking that he's won and he hasn't drunk the poison. And in mid-laugh, he's just like, ha, ha, ha. And then he just keels over dead suddenly. I just love it. I love the contrast between his total confidence in his maniacal laugh and then his hilarious and instant demise right afterwards. That's a good one. That's a classic. There's a lot of good laughs, you know, but for, that, for me, that one just does it. Yeah, I would have never went to that. I know the scene you're talking about. I love The Princess Bride, but I would have never put that together. I went with the Joker and not... Which an- Joker? The, yeah, here's the important one. I went with the animated series from the 90s. So That's is what that Mark, I was going to say. Is yeah, that Mark sure Hamill? Yeah, Mark Hamill. Oh, yeah. And there's a few reasons why, because I didn't know that was Mark Hamill until I got much older. I didn't either. Probably three years ago is probably when I learned that. Yeah, and you're like, Luke Skywalker could do this. He's like, that evil, he can make that laugh. And it, just the, the, the cackle and the pure enjoyment and evil in that laugh, because he has two ranges. It's a very high-pitched laugh where he's like laughing, head going back and everything. And then there's the deep ha-ha-ha-ha-ha part. And yeah. it's creepy on every level as a kid. Oh, so yeah. to me, I think the best maniacal laugh comes from him. All right, Murray. I was really going to try and interject myself into the middle there so that it wasn't ending on this of me going, why do you always bring up movie and pop culture stuff? As soon as I watch a movie, it imme- like it ends, the credits roll, and it immediately goes out of my brain. So for you to try and get Why me do to- you bother watching them? They're enjoyable when it happens. <laughs> oh, so you're just living in the moment. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then when it's over, it's over. It's over. It's done. My Never brain returned. is full. I'm just like, I'm trying to retain the Bible stuff. Like, I don't need to hold on to maniacal laughs. So I couldn't tell you. None? No, I'm just like, I'm pretty sure witches laugh. And then I was like, oh, superhero. And I was like, yeah, the Joker. I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure he laughed. But it's like, I 
couldn't pick one. Bet Midler's witch laugh from Hocus Pocus yes. would definitely be up there. Yeah, that's a good one too. That mm. is the ultimate Halloween classic. I'm a Christian. I don't watch that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's, it's October. It's I think we're at a two <laughs> count on how many times Murdoch flexes on us in this conversation. <laughs> All right, so, <laughs> I've seen it a lot. I just can't remember. So I'll just pride myself on, oh, I've never seen it. It's a good one. All right. It really is. We saw it, uh, Remy watched it last year for the first time. <laughs> she really enjoyed it. There's some, some good laughs in that movie, too. Yeah. Yeah, she really had a good time watching that movie. Anyways, villains. Villains of the Bible. So now we got that out of the way. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, we're going to Genesis chapter 3 with you. Mm. And we're going to look at that evil, slippery, serpent villain. Yes, we are. I, I kind of invited myself on this episode, in fairness. We talked about, well, I think it was when I came on the show last time. Afterwards, we talked about you doing a villains series. And I think I even said to you, if you ever do the serpent, please call me. <laughs> Genesis 3 is like my favorite passage to talk about, pretty much. I mean, I think it's probably in the top two or three most important passages in the Bible, simply because you really can't firmly grasp the story of the Bible more broadly if you don't understand this piece of the human story. And, you know, if if it came down to it, I would say Genesis 3 and like John 1 and John 3.16, like there, there are a handful of passages that really epitomize the story that God is telling in his word. And Genesis 3 is just so crucial, not just for understanding the story itself and why we are the way we are and you know, why why we live the way we live and why we see what we see in the world we inhabit, but also understanding God's God's ultimate vision for the world, the, the world that he's bringing about, the future that he's bringing about, it all is kind of epicentered in this story. And the serpent is really, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to claim any high ground here, but like the serpent is kind of the villain of villains. He's, he's, it's really because of this villain that we have all the other villains in the Bible. He's kind of the prototypical bad guy that sets all the other things in motion. So this is a, this is a tremendous story, and uh, he's a very complex villain to look at, too. So I'm really psyched to talk about it, for sure. This is like the first time someone said that the serpent was the villain and didn't blame Eve. Oh, dude. Don't, okay, we're going to come <laughs> to that, because Eve and Adam both— certainly bear their blame, no doubt. But there are some things we need to remember about what has occurred leading up to Genesis 3 and the kinds of people they were. And I think it's very easy to get, it's easy to get to this high and mighty place where we're like, what fools they were, you know, to do that. But we'll talk about it a little bit as we go. But we just don't realize what kind of beings they were exactly. We don't know what it's like to be to be so innocent and so pure and then to be confronted with absolute evil. You know, when you take total innocence and confront it with just absolute dark-hearted evil, it's impossible to, in my opinion, see Adam and Eve with anything but compassion. It's like, yes, of course, so many terrible things have come as a result of that. And yes, they do bear the blame. And God justly curses and punishes and you know, causes outcomes because of that. But yeah, the, the serpent is the villain in so many ways. And we'll, we'll, I think, unpack that as we go through the story. Yeah, so let's go through the story. I'll, I'll get it kind of rolling. And then whenever you want to interject, like I'll just tell everyone about the story and then we could go from there. Sure. But so Genesis 1, right? We'll start off there. Genesis 1, God creates everything. He creates humans. We get down into it. He places Adam 
in the garden, says, take care of it. Adam, there's no helper for him after he gets done naming all the animals. Puts Adam to sleep, creates woman out of Adam's rib. Then we get into kind of Genesis 3, and after, you know, God's like, okay, here, live in the garden and do all this stuff. Then we get into Genesis 3, which is Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're doing their thing, and then the serpent shows up, and Mm -hmm. he, like, kind of tests them a little bit about what they can eat, what they can or can't do, what God has said, and then they get to the fruit, which, growing up as a kid, we always drew that little red apple in the tree, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that was the, so everyone thought apples are bad for such a long time. Yeah. But... It, the Bible is clear, it's just a fruit, and he says, so you can't eat this fruit, and they're like, no, and he says, well, what would happen, kind of questioning them, getting them to see where they're at, mm-hmm. and then Eve does take the first bite of the fruit, she gives it over to Adam, they eat it, they realize that they're naked, they kind of enter this whole different realm, they go in hiding, they get fig leaves, cover themselves up with it, which I, I guess, yeah, that's the best thing you could think of in the moment, right, is some fig leaves, because <laughs> aren't those going to just wither, and you're going to have to get more leaves to cover up? Anyways. They move forward, they go to the hiding, and then God comes in. And and this has always been one of my favorite parts of this passage is God, like, where are you? And I love that the Bible explains it as he was walking in the garden. Mm -hmm. And where are you guys? And where are you? And looking for them, he knew where they were at. Mm -hmm. So they come out and they said, we were hiding. He said, why were you hiding? Go, well, Adam, of course, throws Eve under the bus. She gave me the fruit to eat and I ate it. And Eve said, well, the serpent gave it to me, so I ate it. And then, you know, God condemns them, judges everyone. Adam and Eve get kicked out. The serpent crawls on its belly, punishment. I'm doing this quickly because I'm sure you're going to unpack more as we get into it. Yeah, I, just want I, people I wouldn't to... mind just going right through the passage. Yeah. Because um, so, there's so much detail in the passage that's so key to understand the essence of the story and to, to kind of get a clear picture. But no, this is a this is a really good overview to kind of set yeah, the so overall stage. So I just want stage. to get it so that way it's set, and then we could get into yeah. the nitty-gritty of it. And yeah. so that's it. That's all I've got. Doug, the yeah. way that you've been talking about it, I'm like, <laughs> the way, oh, we really need to understand Adam and Eve and where they're coming from. And there's just, I'm sitting here going, I think that my Bible might have been missing a few lines. Like, I don't, there's not that much detail coming in. So I'm very excited to see where this conversation goes. Because through studying it and just different stuff, especially as we're looking at the villain and looking at the serpent and that this is in Genesis, right? Because when we come into a Christian point of view and we have Satan, the devil and all of that, and we can look backwards from that point. But here is just like, here's the entrance of the serpent. Like you said, into mankind, we have innocence, we have everything is good. And then the serpent comes in. Yeah. So definitely looking at the villain of the serpent. But yeah, I'm excited to dig into yeah, this. I really did like that because it never clicked in my head either. The the pure innocence meeting pure evil at that moment. That is an important part of, I think, setting the stage for this story, because what we see in Genesis 2, as we're kind of closing up that chapter, we learn that Adam and Eve lived together in the garden, this, this perfect nursery environment, essentially, that God had created. Murdoch, you touched on this in the Cain uh, episode about how the garden was sort of a confined space, and the rest of the world was still remaining sort of wild and untamed, and that this command to be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the ground, seems as though there was this command to, to extend the garden, to increase this, this creative work that God had done to, to sort of unfold and expand the garden and turn the world into this paradise under man's authority. But we get that important line that says, they were naked and felt no shame. And that is a very important note about Adam and Eve. And I'm going to be really careful to try to stay away from too much speculation on anything. And I'll give a big opinion alert when it's me saying like, this is an angle that I think, because I don't want to, I don't want to position everything that I'm saying as if it's, this is like 
flat out orthodox truth, you know. But I think there there are some details. I think when we read the passage kind of slowly and look look at the fine points as we go, I think there are quite a few interesting things that we learn if we look at some of the words that are used and we look at the sequence of events, which is also very, very important. The Genesis 2 sequence sets up and clarifies a few things that we read in Genesis 3. But I guess we can just kind of take it take it as it comes and then we'll just talk talk as we go. I mean, a little bit of, well, we can start with Genesis 3.1. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And I don't know what translation you guys are reading from. I'm reading from the NASB. So some translations will say subtle, the most subtle creature, or some will say crafty or shrewd. I don't know. Are you reading? What are you reading? ESV? I got crafty. I'm in the Berean Study Bible. Oh. So you get sort of different takes on it, but they all seem to imply that the serpent was a very sly creature. You know, we can talk about exactly what the what the angle was there, but the word serpent literally is just the Hebrew nachash, which means snake. It, so this doesn't really carry like a tremendous amount of deep behind the scenes meaning. We read a lot of extra meaning into the serpent because we have retrospect, because we know who the serpent really was. So it's tempting to kind of add meaning back into the text because of what we know from the latter books of the Bible that come. But it's just it's just a snake, and so you know. There's there's questions about like why the snake would be the chosen the chosen animal, right? I mean, the the spoiler here is that the serpent was the devil, was Satan come in the form of this of this creature, and uh, why he came in the form of this creature is a subject of debate. But this verse gives us at least some insight into that because this is a shrewd creature. And when you think about what Satan was trying to accomplish in coming as this creature, essentially he's just trying to get in close. And serpents are really good at getting in close with their prey. Like you see, like the videos of like there's like a mouse and it's like practically standing on the snake and doesn't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the thing strikes and grabs. It's like, how did you not know that thing was there? So when you think about what kind of form would allow the devil to sort of execute his plan. The snake is kind of perfect. That's a really good point. I've never even looked at it from that perspective of what animal could get in close. And yeah, yeah that's really good because, yeah, the serpent just slides right in, does what it wants to. Yeah. It really is the ideal form if you think about, you know, the, the serpent's mission here. And, you know, this is, this is where we can get into like a little bit of opinion on this. But, you know, if this is indeed Satan, which I think the Bible makes very clear, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Everything he says is a lie. And this is the first lie recorded in the Bible. So this kind of fits the description of uh, the father of lies. But in Gen- or Revelation chapter 12 also describes the devil as the dragon and that serpent of old, which seems to make a strong implication, again, that this is actually the devil. You know, he's, he's trying to approach in a way that is sort of not intimidating, not scary, and he's not really making like a full frontal assault on the humans. You know, in contrast with a war in heaven, this frontal assault, this is kind of a bit of a guerrilla warfare moment where he's trying to be sneaky about what he's doing. And he's not trying to just, he's not trying to destroy the humans through like brute force. He's trying to just deliver a, 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 a sort of a metaphorical bite. He's trying to deliver an important bit of conversation to Eve. And that really kind of sets things in motion. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
the, the thing that always comes up here is like, why isn't she freaked out that the snake is talking to her? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, what do you guys, how do you guys usually respond on that one? I never really put those two together. Like when I read the Bible, even when like the donkey talks to Balaam, I'm like, right. yeah, that sounds right. I guess watching enough cartoons <laughs> where animals talk, you're like, oh, that's legit. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't doubt it. I grew up and God made vegetables talk. I mean, come on. <laughs> of course he's going to talk. <laughs> That's true. The talking like, no, uh, for me, and this has been through some of the different scholars that I look at, again, kind of framing it from opinion. That for me, it's more opinion to the stuff that I look at because one, I'm not a scholar. Two, not all scholars agree on all of this stuff. No, they are but taking that disagree. word Nakash, like you said, for serpent. Are you familiar with Michael Heiser? Mm-mm. Okay, yeah. He's a Old Testament scholar. I kind of gotten a lot of framework from him regarding like the unseen realm of things. Mm. Um, but he's saying that Nakash can be taken as a noun or an adjective and a verb even. And if you look at that, that as an adjective, it could be coming in as the shining one, like a brazen bronze, like shining mm. and relating that to like Isaiah 14 and some, I think it's Isaiah 14, some different places that it would be used of like a throne guardian. And he'll he tries to relate this serpent being like one of the throne guardians that like was part of God's council that flipped on him basically. Mm-hmm. That's why I was like, why weren't they freaked out that the serpent was talking? Like, well, there was all kinds of stuff going on in the Garden of Eden that a talking yeah. serpent wasn't the most you know outlandish thing. Yeah, well, you're you're exactly right on that. I mean, Ezekiel twenty eight is another example where you have mm-hmm. you have. Uh, this angelic being who's referred to as the perfection of wisdom and beauty and who had all access to the heavenly realms. And this is part, kind of the backstory of the serpent right, know, that's right. important to understand. But we don't really know what was normal for Adam and Eve at that time. They they inhabited a world that was very different from ours, a world where heaven and earth had not undergone this divorce that that they ultimately underwent. And so we don't know how accustomed they were to speaking to angelic beings. It could have happened all the time. They could have come in the form of animals frequently. I mean, in the Bible, angels appear in all sorts of different forms, sometimes as people, sometimes as shiny, glorious people, sometimes as just regular people, and in this case, you know, perhaps in the form of an animal. So there are a lot of different ways to interpret it. But And we also don't know—one of the keys to understanding Genesis 3, and, and a lot of passages in the Bible, is— we, we don't know what's between the lines, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you're only getting—this whole thing is done in just, like, a, a dozen or so verses, you know? Like, this whole interaction is over within the first seven verses of the, of the chapter. So we don't know, just because this, the text doesn't say that Eve leapt back in surprise doesn't mean that that didn't happen. So we actually don't know exactly what that response is. Uh, I like that, like. too, because when you look at chapter 2 ends with— they were both naked and they felt no shame. Like, that's the mm. end of chapter two. And then chapter three starts, now the serpent was more. So a lot of times we read that because of the way we read things. And we've talked about this before. We kind of just see it as this event happened and then this immediately happened next. Mm. So it was like butted right next to each other because it happened that quickly. But we also don't know the time or space from they were naked and felt no shame to the serpent was more crafty. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Like, how long were they in the garden? Like, a- if you're going, oh, chapter one, two, three is like, man, they messed up quick. That, we're we're going to touch on that as we go. If if I, you know, if I get to say what I want to say, we're going to talk about that because there are some, there are a few things in here where the time spans are very unknown. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at Genesis two, for example, we don't know how long Adam lived before Eve's creation. 
We know there was a lot of activity that happened. He's said to have named the animals. Does that mean he named every animal on Earth? There are like millions of species. Or did he just name animals that were in that local area that God presented to him? We don't really know. All that's unknown in the text. But it seems to be that there is a relationship forming between Adam and, and the Lord, and we don't know how long that he existed in that state. We know it was long enough for this tension to build of like, there's no one for me, there's no, there's no mate suitable for me, and God notices that that's not good and ultimately creates Eve. But we don't know how long this sort of one-on-one relationship between Adam and, and God existed uh, in that previous state. The serpent's question here is really, really of great interest to me because he says, did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That is a question that seems really clumsy at first because it's so far off from the command. It's not at all what God had had said to them. But like the more we examine it, I think we realize like it's actually a really ingenious opening to the conversation, you know, because on the one hand, you could be like, well, how clumsy that he would say that. But on the other hand, it sort of makes it sound as though the question almost implies that there's a rumor circulating that, that God is starving the humans. Because what God had actually said is you can eat from every tree of the garden, all of them, just not this one. The tree of life is also not excluded from that command, by the way. He's only, they only are commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so it's interesting that he makes this he makes this opening statement, and it's this question, this very broad, really a travesty of God's generosity. So God's command was actually incredibly generous. He had surrounded them with all the food that they could ever that they could ever consume or want, and just said, "Don't eat this one." But the devil shows up, or the serpent shows up, and says, "Is it true that you're not allowed to eat from any of these trees?" Dang, like that sucks. And it makes you wonder, like what what effect that might have had on a very innocent Eve, you know, like. Why would anyone say that, you know? Why would anyone think that about God, you know? And so there, there are questions that are raised by that. But, and of course, Eve goes on to correct him quickly, which we'll see in the, in the next verse. But it must have sort of created a bit of a dissonance for her. Like, what? Uh, is there a side of God that I haven't seen? Or is he not as good as like I thought he was? Or, you know. And then verse two, it says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. It's like, silly snake. Of course, of course we can eat from the trees of the garden. Uh, from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die, which is an interesting addition because that's not actually a part of God's original command about the tree. So do not eat it. There's no actual command not to touch. And so different commentators will say, maybe this is Eve placing an extra layer of security. Like we're not even going to go near that thing just to prevent, prevent a fall. You know, we don't want to mess up. We're not even going to touch it. Maybe that's the case. Um, But if we look at the timeline carefully of Genesis 2, we also see that the command that God issued about the tree, he gave to Adam prior to Eve being created. Right, exactly. So he he says, uh, which which is, I think it's in verse verse 17 of chapter 2, God says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And then in the next verse, verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And, and then he makes Eve. So we don't know, like, is this like a lost in translation thing? Did, did Adam misrepresent the command to Eve? Um, but it seems as though Eve didn't exist yet and, and maybe didn't have firsthand recollection of what the Lord had actually said. You were I noticing was, was. that as well, it seemed. Yeah, well, I was just, when you were bringing up, oh, if Eve was putting an extra layer on it, I'm just thinking about me with my wife. If I know that something's dangerous, and it's like, you have no business, no need to go near it. Like, 
I would put that extra layer. Totally. <laughs> like, again, Eve gets the brunt from so much stuff and is just like, oh. yeah, I don't really think that's there because even when we get to it, she hands the fruit to Adam who was there with her. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's not all Eve. And I think that the way that we read it or like you said, the way that it's written, we don't get too much mm-hmm. there, but we well, should that's... pay attention to what is there. I'm so glad you noticed that about Eve or that you're mentioning that because, yes, Eve gets such a raw deal in the way this story is represented. I'm like, take it easy on this girl, man. Like, you don't know, like, you, you don't know the state that she lived in. And it's the, it's the, what makes this story so tragic and what makes the serpent so evil is the sheer innocence that he was preying upon. These are people who have never heard a lie before. Never. Like, for us, lies are just like, a fact of life. We expect to be lied to all the time. We, we, we take this skeptical approach to everything. It's like, is that really true? Like, we read the news, we're like, is that really true? We expect to be lied to all the time. But Adam and Eve had no expectation of being lied to. They didn't even have a framework for what that was. So, you know, when I think of the snake approaching Eve, I think of it the way an evil adult would target a child. Mm. Children don't have the framework for this. They don't have the skepticism that's needed to keep yourself safe in situations like that. You know, so when, a, when a, an evil stranger comes along and offers you candy or makes a promise or says, Look, come, come over here for this, children don't have enough experience in the world and enough shrewdness of their own to recognize those lies when they come. So we really got to take it easy on Eve. And before we go to this, like, well, if I was in her shoes, I, sir, I would have thrown that snake over the waterfall and said, you know, be gone with you. No, you wouldn't have. Because you don't even know what it's like to be that kind of creature. Right. You have no clue. I think no that's clue. where, like, context into when you're reading your Bible is so important. And mm-hmm. actually knowing things when you're reading it, not just kind of reading it and then passing by. Like, actually studying, looking into things. Because looking at that whole passage of, like, yeah, Eve wasn't there. I had to go back when you were talking about that to reread the command, and I'm noticing like, oh, yeah, she wasn't there. Right. So when she added a little more to it, it wasn't like she just instinctively added to it. Maybe, yeah, Adam had told her, and again, speculation, but yep. maybe he had warned her, don't even touch it. Don't We, we need to just make sure we don't go near yeah, there. Yeah, like just give it a wide berth. Mm-hmm. Don't even go near it. And you could totally understand. You Which could totally understand that. The serpent, like you were saying, even more of a villain than we're, we actually notice in the story. He's like, oh, it's just a snake. No, this dude had a plan and a whole scheme, and it was just coming at them and even putting in the context of innocence that he's coming at them at a, at a hard level here. And I think that with that, that plan and the scheme that he's more crafty and all that stuff coming in. So there could be people who might be wicked, who might be doing things, <laughs> who, if they were to set this up like the serpent is, you can set somebody up in a, that they are confident in their position. Hey, mm. Is it really true that this, and then you know the truth? No, 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 that's not true right? Mm-hmm. Is, Eve, is it really true? You can't eat of any of these? Like, no, that's not true at all. All of a sudden, that person's the fool, and you're the person who knows. Mm-hmm. You don't think that a fool who doesn't know anything is going to be somebody who can get one over on you. So. But it's interesting that the serpent flips the script in a minute, because yeah. he goes from making a really ignorant question about God's command to suddenly acting as the authority on the command, Yeah, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment. Sorry to interrupt. Casey here with Remy. Hey, everybody. So, Remy, you've been having a problem with snakes in your garden lately, right? Yes, it's been so bad lately. Every time I go to water or pick some amazing fruits and vegetables I'm growing, there's a snake. That sounds awful. There's this new product out there called the Heel Crusher that takes care of your snake problem in the garden. Really? How does it work, and where do I get one? 
You set up all the sensors around your garden. When they notice the snake in your garden, the heel crusher takes action and crushes the head of the snake. That sounds so simple to use. It really is, and you can buy the heel crusher on their website, crushthatserpenthead.com for the low, low price of $19.99. What a deal. I'm going to grab one today to get those serpents out of my yard ASAP. Thanks, Casey. Anytime, Remy. Now back to the show. You also talked about Eve and Adam being together for this moment. I, I, that is the commonly accepted approach. Uh, in, a, in a minute when we get to it and when they actually eat the fruit, I'll, I'll touch on it. I think there are actually some indications in the text that Adam was not present for the conversation, but was present at the time of the eating of the fruit. Mm. We know he was present at the time of the eating of the fruit, but I actually think there's some indications in the text that he was not there for the conversation. And I think there's another, this, and again, uh, this will be an opinion alert or, or a, a speculation alert here. We have here. a heresy button that I play. Okay, cool. Like, heresy cool. alert, heresy <laughs> alert. Well, this won't be heresy, <laughs> but it'll definitely be, it, it's definitely a, a, a point of interest. The serpent, or Satan, shall we say, is behaving in the manner of a predator. And it seems that he has implemented some of the same techniques that we see in the animal kingdom, primarily sort of like epi- epitomized by snakes. Getting in close remaining silent and unseen. Predators also don't usually go after pairs. They will usually go after one. Usually they'll go after the smaller one. Eve is the smaller. Eve is the younger. Eve is the one who hasn't had as much personal experience with God. Eve, in, in the mind of the serpent, probably presents as the easier target or the more likely, yeah. the more likely entry point for him to succeed. And so when you think about the, the MO of a predator, it just doesn't seem like it would make sense for him to take on both at the same time. That's a good point. It makes more sense that he would go after the small one, which probably Eve was the smaller. And so, and, and you know, not that physical size necessarily would have made anyone stronger in this moment. And not to say that Adam would have fared any better if the serpent had gone after him. But there was something about the special relationship that Adam had already had a long time possibly to form with God that might have made him a little bit more resistant to the lie of the serpent. Because he heard that command straight out of the mouth of God himself. Eve didn't have that benefit, it would seem, from the text. But we'll come to that timeline thing and, and all that in a moment. But it's sort of like lies in, in the, what you were talking about, Chris, where when you sort of like extend the slinky of the biblical text a little bit and you start looking between the gaps, um, you start realizing, well, actually a lot could have occurred in that little moment. We need to, to notice. But anyway, we're only on verse two. <laughs> and I, I don't want to make this a three-hour podcast, although I totally would love that. Just have a really long conversation. We'll turn it into two episodes. <laughs> Dude, let's do it, man. This is literally my favorite passage to study in the entire Bible. It's probably the passage that I spent the most time studying in the Bible. So I like when I'm writing my notes before this conversation, these, these are not notes so that I know what to say. These are notes to try to confine me and not have me going on every <laughs> tangent that my heart and mind wants to go down. Like, can we talk about this? Can we talk about that? But no, I don't want to get us way off track. Anyway, so she says, you know, she says the command back to the snake. She gets it a little bit wrong. but. You know, it seems like she's, she's being careful for sure. We can commend Eve for that. This is when, when we get to, to verse 4, the snake flips the script. Suddenly he goes from being this ignorant guy who's sort of like spinning the rumor mill about like, is it true that God said that? No, of course that's not true. Now he flips it, and now he is acting like he is the foremost authority on, on God's command and this tree, like he's the expert on this tree. Because Eve said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent says to the woman in verse 4, you certainly will not die. This is a blatant, flat-out, bold-faced lie. He is trying to undermine the seriousness of God's command and remove the consequences from the equation. 
which is which is kind of the nature of temptation for all of us. It's like if when we're having those so, so to speak conversations, those tempting conversations, let's speak with the devil, or there's this back and forth. There is always a heightening of the reward and a diminishing of the consequence that usually comes along with with that temptation. Yeah, always. <laughs> That's just kind of like the nature of it. That's just sort of like it's baked into the to the system. And it's so important that we recognize that this is a flat out lie. It's it's not as though it, it's not just this mere suggestion. It is a complete and utter departure from what God has said and from the truth. And you, sometimes people will say, well, it's kind of true because they didn't die instantly when they ate the fruit. But it's like, yeah, well, what's the difference? You know, God said you will die and surely they did die because of it. In verse five, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And this is like the core of the lie. And what's interesting is that the lie that the serpent is transmitting to Eve is the same lie that it appears he had believed and led to his own downfall. I, I think the core lie here, and it's the lie that sits at the heart of so much of human behavior, is you can be more than you are, but God's commands are standing in your way. That there, there, there are higher limits to your existence. You can ascend to God's own likeness. You can become just like him, but his commands are holding you back. He's trying to hold you down so you don't come up to his level. And, you know, when we read like Ezekiel 28, for example, uh, and we, we, there's like this really interesting passage where God is speaking through the prophet against the king of Tyre, this wicked king. And then he finishes saying something that applies obviously to the king of Tyre. But then he flips the script and he says, hey, prophet, give one more word to the king of Tyre. And suddenly he starts saying things to the king of Tyre that totally don't apply to any human king of Tyre. And he starts saying things like, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And he talks about the downfall of this mighty angelic guardian and, and this whole thing. And the whole nature of the fall of this being, which seems pretty clear cut to be Satan himself, is that he wanted to become God. He wasn't content to live in his God-given station. He wanted to ascend and become like God himself. And ultimately that resulted in his downfall, his defeat, his casting out of heaven and you know, kind of crash landing on earth as we see now. I like that a lot. And I guess some of the stuff when we hear things from people, like they state the obvious, right? Like you're mm -hmm. saying, we want to go beyond the commands to reach this higher level. And that's what Satan threw at Eve. That's what he fell with. But when we're in the midst of it, even when you're talking about like the temptation side of things, we're in the midst of it. It's almost like we forget those things so easily mm -hmm. that yeah, God's commands are always restricting me from doing what I want to do or doing what I want to do and how I want to do it and with who I want to do it. He's just so restricting and confining. And if I could just break free of that, then I'll have the freedom that I truly desire. But mm -hmm. it is the opposite of it is those are the things that are confining you. Those are the things that are holding you back and, and keeping you there. So again, I, I could read this passage and I could see that when I read it. But then when someone just says it, it just, wait, yeah, that makes total sense. So yeah. I really like that you brought that up. Well, we still find ourselves giving into that temptation all the time. Yeah. It's like we still believe this lie in all sorts of different ways. It's like, uh, you know, you, you can apply it to, to just about any area of life where you want to take a shortcut to the pleasure or to, the, to the, uh, the good thing that God might even have in store for you, but you just can't stand to do it in his time or in his way. And so we violate his commands. 
thinking that his commands are the things that are restricting our life rather than seeing his commands as life-giving in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And ironically, you know, the thing that the serpent promises that if they eat the fruit, they'll become just like God. But in fact, what he really means is if you eat the fruit, you'll become just like me. You'll buy the same lie I bought. You'll fall the same way I fell. You'll be consumed by that the same way I was. And which doesn't even make it, if we're kind of putting it in the context of he fell because he wanted to be God or like God, you really think of it then and, and, and think that he wasn't necessarily telling them a lie. He was telling them a truth that he believed for himself. Yes. You'll be a God like me. That's really good. That, that's deep stuff there. I, again, I've never really put all the stuff together, so I'm glad you're here with us. Yeah, hearing, uh, I'm just going to interject real quick. Just that thing of reaching those levels to be like God and the lie that's within that, that really falls into Gnosticism when you get into those teachings, which is one of the main mm. things in the New Testament that they were fighting against, was that level of the way that they viewed Yahweh, the God of the Bible, was Yahweh was the evil, the wicked one that came over and mm-hmm. put all these rules down, and he is in the way of you. He's ascending. the inhibitor. Yeah, he's the inhibitor, exactly. And that was one of the main things that the early church was coming against was that very thing, and that started to try and infiltrate the church. Again, same teachings, right? And you get the whole thing about teachings against Antichrist, the Gnosticism, and that coming in. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, the devil is still trying to sell the lie that's there and, and bring that in. And it still works. And he's still doing it. That's the crazy part. I'm not going to throw any names out, but there are pastors out there still preaching today that we can be forms of God and who stand at the pulpit and scream, I am God. Yeah. Not going to throw a name out, but it's pretty well known. Yeah. But it's still out there, that teaching of like we can ascend to that level. It's really appealing, though, especially because I almost, when I went out and I was studying all different scriptures and coming to a point and then coming like, all right, what about Christianity? And it kind of brings it to that point of, oh, all of them are all teaching the same thing, and Christianity mm-hmm. is just a flavor of it. And then mm-hmm. coming in, and like I almost went into like Christian mysticism and Gnosticism because it appeals to that thing of, oh, where I'm at in life and my failures and my everything, I can and I should be able to rise above it, and mm-hmm. I just need to reach that next step. And there's always the next step, and it's an ever-going thing. And like, yeah, honestly, my life got really bad at that point because mm-hmm. I was not seeking to follow God through his scripture and through Christ, really. And, you know, to walk that life, it was, oh, no, let me find my way up the mountain, so to speak, and to do that. And it's super destructive, but it seems like the right thing. Like, especially like when you get into some of those teachings, like, oh, yeah, this seems right, because it appeals to that temptation that we see here. It, Um, It appeals to your desire to glorify the self. And what's funny about what what the serpent says and and what's true in what he says is that, in fact, when they eat from the tree, their eyes will be opened, but not in the way that they think. Their eyes will be opened, and they will see something they can't unsee mm-hmm. and know something they can't unknow and become something from which they will have no way of getting back without God's help and his, ultimately, his ultimate redemption plan. But this, this lie is so critical. And, and this, is a, this is something that we have to understand, I think, when it comes to, again, understanding God's ultimate redemptive plan that, that's in motion. That was in motion from the foundations of the world, by the way. That he didn't set that plan in motion when this happened. This has always been God's plan. We're, we're, that's made very clear. Uh, and, and we'll put this in the opinion category, but I think that there is this very strong indications of this in the text. We have no reason to believe that Adam and Eve would have fallen on their own. Some people make the claim that with enough time, the tree was there. And as long as the tree was there, 
there was the, the potential for Adam and Eve to fall. I, I get that. I actually don't think that the tree is a sufficient ingredient to lead to Adam and Eve's falling. These are two beings made good and bearing the image of God. They had no inclination to do wrong. Nothing in their nature that would suggest that they would go awry on their own. It was only when a lie was told to them from an outsider that they fell. So we can make the point that, or make the claim that with enough time, they inevitably would have fallen on their own. But that's actually a steeper, that's a taller order biblically than to say that they wouldn't have fallen on their own. Because we can say in, in another situation, if the serpent hadn't showed up, they would have fallen eventually on their own. Well, there's no biblical indicator of that whatsoever. What did happen in the Bible is they were created, the tree was there, and they did not fall. And we don't even know, like you said earlier, we don't know what the time spans were here. They could have been in the garden for a very long time before the serpent ever showed up. Although I don't think so because they probably would have procreated in that time. So that there's something that constrains the timeline there for me. But what we do know is they remained pure. They remained obedient until this lie was told. So there's something really important about this lie in the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate actualizing of human free will. And I think we have to understand something important about God's ultimate vision for the world here. And I think this is where like, it's important to understand that I think, you know, you guys can interject or enhance this or tweak it if, if, if you think I'm, you know, saying it imperfectly, but it seems that God's ultimate mission in the world or mission period is to create a good world and fill it with people who are in his image, who are loved by him, and who freely choose to love him in return. And without legitimate, actualizable free will, God cannot have relationships with free creatures who freely choose to love him in return. So I believe that there is a very important purpose served by the serpent in this, in this instance. And even though the serpent is a villain and does evil, God has a very recurring habit of using what was intended for evil in order to bring about his good and redemptive purposes. And Satan actually falls into that a lot. Satan kind of gets jujitsued by God all the time. And, it's, <laughs> and you quickly realize that Satan may be extremely wise, but he is nothing compared to our all-wise creator. And every time Satan thinks he's gotten victory, God flips the script, and, and the serpent actually realizes that he's brought, around, brought about his own defeat. He's never the step ahead that he thinks he is. He always thinks he is, and that's the pride. Yeah. I mean, you, you can look at the example of Jesus' own crucifixion. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Right? You think of Judas. Yeah. The Bible says that Satan went into Judas, and then Judas goes and betrays the Lord, goes to the Sanhedrin, and, and you know, at least Jesus' rest. Satan was clearly interested in seeing Jesus crucified. He had no clue that that was going to be the very thing that would bring down his entire empire. Like it, he ruined his own plan because in his efforts to do what seemed to be the right thing to destroy God's Messiah, ends up being the thing that brings about the resurrection that would totally wipe him out and ensure his total total defeat. Yeah. In I the think end. that Paul at a point basically says, "Yeah, if they if the devil had understood the mysteries of what this is, they never would have crucified him." Yeah, because yeah, it was there, and we can look retroactively back at the scriptures and put it together. But it's like I. Don't know, like even prideful Satan, you know, I think that Satan knows the scriptures and, you know, knows what's going on. Just like, oh, here comes the son, here comes the one and yeah. kill him, cut him off. 
Okay, yep. can I go? Can I go way into speculation for just one moment? Yeah, yeah. You you can hit the heresy button on this one if you want. I, but I'm I'm propose I'm throwing this out there as a very. I'm granting up front that this is like totally just my own musing here, but you know you've got certain, especially with apocalyptic literature in the Bible that has to do with uncovering future. You know, typically uncovering future uh, events. You know, sort of the immutable plans that God has in store. It's very interesting to me that they're often written in such cryptic language. It's clear that God is God sort of has a tactical interest in seeing to it that the enemy does not know his plans. And I, I sometimes wonder when I'm looking at passages of the Bible that are written in a way that are so cryptic. And I'm like, why not just say it plainly, you know? But God is clearly interested in maintaining some some hiddenness in his plans. Because there's an enemy that will look to utilize that knowledge to to play the game, you know? So I kind of wonder if sometimes scriptures are intentionally vague, not to make things hard on the human readers, because those things can be revealed by the Holy Spirit. He can choose to reveal that in in his time and, and on the occasions that he chooses. But, you know, it's clear that, like you said, Murdoch, these scriptures existed. These prophecies about the Messiah had been written thousands of years before. And yet Satan still played right into the plan. The The part I found interesting was that when Murdoch, when you're talking about, like, does Satan know Scripture? Like, yeah, he does. I mm-hmm. mean, he went to Jesus with it three times with Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Yeah. And what I really thought about it was the idea that when we read Scripture with the wrong motives, with the wrong intent, and with the wrong attitude, like reading it in anger, in a sense, because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Satan isn't happy when he's reading this. It's constantly him getting shot down or his plans getting foiled. Mm-hmm. But when you read it in, in, in a way that isn't out of love and joy and happiness— you misinterpret things or you just don't fully understand it. You're kind of just, you're reading it for the wrong purposes. And you see that throughout, I mean, even today when people come in and they're like, well, the Bible says this and this and this, and they're attacking at the Bible, but they're reading it from the wrong point of view, or they're just taking out just a portion, just a sliver yeah. that fits what they want. And and that, it just made me think about that, that, you know, this is Satan here. This is how he reads the scripture. It's It's angry. It's not clear it's not focused and so when he comes at it even though he knows it does him no good well he's proud it's it's amazing what you can be blind to when you're proud you know a, a, a prideful person can't learn because a prideful person already knows it all in their own mind mm. and amazingly i i wonder if satan doesn't still think he can win even now because he's still out there he's still doing his thing he's still doing everything he can to thwart god's plan and when we look at, you know, the book of Revelations, there seems pretty clear that, like, he's, he doesn't plan on giving up at any point. So it's amazing, like, and then you think, like, how could you be, if you're this angelic being and you dwell in the very presence of God, like, how do you become proud and fall and, and betray him? Or Adam and Eve, you know, if you, if you lived in the very presence of God, you know, you walking with him in the cool of the day, as we'll see in a moment, things like that. It's like, how do you, I think it's amazing what pride can blind you to. I know we want to get back over to Genesis, but we just do. looking at that, it's still thinking that he could win. Like I've I've been prideful in my life, and if somebody tells me something, and I'm just like, no, I'm going to prove that wrong. Yeah. George's like, hey, the battle at Megiddo, like you're totally going to lose, and all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like to see you try. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I'll I'll win that battle. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Pride just does that to where you can't be told. It just becomes a challenge. You, I you do share. all sorts of irrational things when you're proud. Yeah, I want to share one story. Then yeah. we're going to wrap up this episode and pick up part two because we are going to do a part two with this. Are we already at that time? Yeah, we're already oh at that time. Gosh. So we'll do a part two. So we I'm had to apologize. John, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, we'll, we'll do chapters or verses uh, four through the rest. But 
<laughs> I don't know how many are left there. Uh, but six through. Oh, I'd like to do the rest of the chapter. Okay, so we'll do six through the rest of the chapter <laughs> in the next three. part, part two and three. Hopefully, um, this will be our like Star Wars saga. But uh, Jonathan, who we had on the show, Pastor Jonathan here at the church with us, we had him on the show. So growing up, Jonathan lived next door to, and his parents still do, to my grandma's house. And me and my cousin Paul were very close and John. So I was over there a lot. And then as we grew up, I was close to uh, Justin Moore, his older brother, because we're about the same age. But Jonathan was around sometimes, and Jonathan's a wrestler. He's a, a CIF. Yeah, he's a multi-time, very, very accomplished very, wrestler. Very, he's really yeah. good wrestler and a bigger guy than me. So I'm standing at <laughs> much. <laughs> I'm standing at five six, five seven on a good day, with depending on the shoes I wear. And Jonathan's like six foot, probably like two twenty. Uh, yeah, two twenty. I'm like a hundred and especially at this time, probably a hundred and thirty pounds. So I would think I could wrestle and grapple with him because I had some knowledge of it. And I, man, very parallel to Satan here. And mm. I don't want to make that relation to myself and Satan. But anyways. <laughs> I would grapple with him thinking I could win. One day he, we were going at it and he grabbed my ankle and he had it. Like there's no getting out of it. Mm. In my pride, like Murdoch was saying, I was going to get out of this and, mm. and I didn't care. And I did this roll and move and all of a sudden it felt like someone took a book and just slammed it on my ankle. And I blacked out for a second or two, dropped down to the floor and got back up. And when I got back up, I was mad because mm-hmm. it wasn't just me and Jonathan and, and by ourselves. We were doing mm-hmm. it in Justin's room. So Justin and Paul were there. And I was like, who hit me with the book? <laughs> like, who hit my ankle while he was doing that? Like, this isn't WWE. We were just like really grappling here. Like, <laughs> what are you guys doing? And everyone's face was like shocked. They were just like, <gasps> and Jonathan, like hands up in the air, like if the cops came in or something, like up, <laughs> face pale. And they're like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm all right. And they're like, your ankle popped when you rolled. Mm. And I was like, no, nah, I'm fine. And I walked it off. The next day, my ankle was fat, swollen. I couldn't walk on that thing for like three weeks. Jonathan and me still laugh about it, but it was that pride of, mm. I thought I could still win when clearly I should have just tapped out. And, and when we're talking about Satan and the serpent here, it, it does make sense that there is this enemy who still, no matter what, feels and believes that they're going to win, which is why they're still attacking. And, and it's our spot to let people know around them, like, no, this mm. battle is legitimately over. We can walk in victory. It's, it, it's the mentality that I would rather go down in flames than bend a knee to God. Yeah. I see what you did there, because he does. <laughs> and in fact, he does. I mean, that's the nature of everybody who rebels against God. Mm. I would rather go down in flames I'll pay any price so long as I don't have to bend a knee and submit to God. You know, and that, that's, a hard, that's a hard state to overcome, mm-hmm. a hard mentality to get out of. All right, so let's wrap this one up, and then we'll jump into it for next week. So I'm Chris. I'm Yurdler. I'm Doug. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>